This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Let's come back to our seats if we can. And open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll be able to, we're going to cover this whole chapter today, so you'll be able to track with us. There's a Bible under the seat in front of you. Please take that out, and you can uh, look with us at page 560. And if you, uh, if you don't own a Bible, just take that Bible, and uh, that's our gift to you. Uh, if this is your first Sunday here, this is the final message in a series that began last September, if you can believe that. So this is together the final episode. And so I, I trust you won't feel like you've walked in. It's, it's a little bit like walking into a movie and you walk in and the closing credits are running and you go, oh, I wonder how it was. Well, we're going to refer back to what happened uh, throughout the whole book. It's been a great study for us as a church uh, since last September. And as Rob mentioned, we start a new, uh, new series next week. So first Corinthians 16, we're going to cover the whole chapter today and uh, say goodbye to a dear friend, the book of Corinthians and some dear people, uh, the Corinthians. Here we go. First Corinthians 16. This is God's word. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you and even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. 
my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and that you always speak to us through your word. And even in closing greetings and goodbyes like this, you have something for us from your word today. So I pray that you would speak. I I pray that you would help us to, uh, Lord, to really have hope in you. I pray that you would help us to see how you relate to us and our sin and weakness and how we are to relate to others. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would open eyes and ears and hearts that we would be responsive to you today. Lord, thank you for this journey that you've led us on as a church these 10 months, and we pray the things we've learned about living life together and being together would bear fruit for the years to come. Lord, we we pray not just for today, but we pray for the deposit of this book into our lives that you would bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come to the end of this book, we see that, that Paul is kind of wrapping things up, isn't he? And as you read the chapter, it's hard to pick out a single theme. It's not like the whole chapter is about one idea because he's doing a lot of different things here. Uh, he's giving some closing exhortations. Uh, he is giving some closing greetings. Uh, he's talking about things like his travel plans. I mean, goodness, how in the world do we apply Paul's travel plans to our lives and his delegates, this Timothy and Apollos, and what does that mean to us today? But he, he's, he's kind of closing things out. And as I looked at this last chapter and studied it and realized it's really hard to find a singular theme in the chapter, it occurred to me that it's probably best for us to consider this chapter in light of all that has gone on before. For it, because Paul is closing out a letter here that has been written to a church with real trouble. I mean, for 16 chapters, he's been addressing theological. Uh, deficiencies and false beliefs among the uh, the Corinthians. He's been dealing with many practical matters among them as well because they are a struggling church. I mean, think about it. If you've been here for the study, think about it. The letter began with them really losing their grip on the gospel. Paul had to tell them, you are, you've lost your grip on the gospel. You're divided from one another. Is Christ divided? They're divided into factions, warring against one another in this church. They are, um, they, they are, are separated around leaders, and, and their separation is leading to crazy stuff. They're suing each other, taking each other to court as a church. Uh, they are getting, they're not expressing unity in the Lord's Supper. They're selfish. As a matter of fact, people are getting drunk on wine at the Lord's Supper. Some of them are going to idol temples and participating likely in wicked activities in the idol temples. They are judging other people when they shouldn't be. So someone's eating meat, someone's not eating meat, and they're judging each other. And they're failing to judge when they should judge. They've got a couple in the church that's in an incestuous relationship, and they have no problem with it. So rather than lovingly address them, they are just allowing it to go on and and perhaps even feeling quite comfortable with that kind of of activity. They're speaking in tongues, thinking that's spiritual. The whole church is coming together. Everybody's speaking in tongues. Nobody can understand what's going on. And Paul has to state the obvious. If an outsider comes in, he's going to think you're absolutely nuts. So knock it off. You're not helping anyone. God's not impressed. And certainly the outsider won't be. 
Uh, They are not looking to love one another. And that's what he says in chapter 13. If you have all the gifts and all the right doctrine and all the right ministry plan for the church and all the right leaders and you're in the right location and if you don't love one another, none of it matters. It's all for nothing. And what we see in this concluding chapter is Paul relating as he has the whole letter to struggling people. This church is a mess and the believers in it are struggling. And here in his closing comments, we see how Paul relates to struggling Christians. Look at the last two verses of the letter. They are telling because you have to know for 16 chapters, it's been a mess. And here's how he leaves them. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. How does Paul relate to struggling believers? Well, grace is where the letter started and it's where it closes. The grace of God, the grace of Jesus be with you. What's the last thing he wants them to know? I love you. It's grace and it's love. That's what the whole letter has been about. Grace and love to struggling Christians. And it's not just the Corinthians. There are a lot of struggling Christians. This room is filled with them. What one definition of the word struggle is to make one's way with difficulty. To make one's way with difficulty. That is the plan for every Christian. We all make our way with difficulty, varying levels of difficulty, but we all make our way with difficulty. And that's why the Bible is so relevant because this book addresses struggling Christians who are finding it difficult to make it on their way individually and difficult to make it on their way as a local church. And, and, and God relates to them in such a compassionate way. And that's all of us. We're all struggling. We're all messed up. We're all weak. We're all sinful. The Bible is eminently relevant because it treats us as we are. It acknowledges our realities. And these closing comments we see, this is, Paul deals with such love and integrity and care and wisdom to struggling Christians. Are the Corinthians inconsistent? Absolutely. Are they hypocritical? Absolutely in various ways. Are you inconsistent? Absolutely. Are there pockets of hypocrisy in your life? Absolutely. Anytime our life does does not match up to our profession of faith, there is hypocrisy. And so that is all of us. We all struggle. Some of us are really struggling today. There are some of us that 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 are in deep trouble, particularly those who are drifting or have drifted into doctrinal confusion or practices that aren't honoring the Lord. And though we're all struggling, some of us at this season are going through real difficulties in our faith. faith, We are barely making progress. So how do we as a church, we're all struggling, but how do we relate to those who are particularly in deep trouble? And we all go through those seasons at times, but how how do we relate to those who are in real difficulty? And I want to take this chapter and I want to use it as a a prescription for how to 
how to care for someone who is in spiritual trouble because that's the Corinthians. And Paul shows how he does that in this last chapter. Grace and love. And here's the first truth is that grace and love calls strugglers to look above themselves to Christ. Look at what he says. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Verse 23. Paul's hope is in the work of Christ. Paul's last comments to them are look outside of yourself. His hope is the death and resurrection of Christ for them. The objective reality of what Jesus has done for them. In the second chapter, he said, I know, I knew rather nothing among you, but Christ and him crucified. When I was with you, everything was about Jesus and him crucified and everything I taught and everything I'm going to teach is going to connect to the person of Christ and what he's done for us in his death and resurrection. Chapter 15, he says, this is of first importance that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised according to the scriptures. So folks who are in deep trouble. Folks who are in significant struggles don't need a list of things to go and do to fix themselves. People who are in deep trouble, all of us, but people who are in deep trouble need a refreshing, refocusing view of Jesus Christ. And that's where he lives, leaves them. May the grace of Christ be with you. Has he given them instruction? Absolutely. Has he given them instruction in these verses that we're studying today? Yes, he's given them instruction. But his closing instruction is where he began the entire letter on the grace of Jesus Christ. And he says, look beyond yourself. Because here's the reality. When we see Christ as he is, when we get a glimpse of our Savior and what he has done for us, it changes our perspective. Everything looks different when we see Christ, and our heart is changed. You cannot have a heart change apart from an encounter with Jesus Christ. You can modify behavior, you can start some new disciplines, but you will not be changed from the inside as a Christian until you grasp afresh the glory of Jesus, the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And that's why he leaves them, may the grace of Christ be with you, because that's where change comes. That's where life is found. Has he given them steps and has he given them activities and has he given them uh, exhort exhortations to obedience? Yes. But the beginning of the letter and the closing of the letter and sprinkled throughout in between is Christ, 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 such that he can say, I knew nothing else among you. Recently, I was speaking with someone who had, well, completely lost their way as a follower of Jesus Christ, someone in deep, deep trouble spiritually. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. I'll tell you the counsel I offered them, and it's the same counsel I'd offer you today. It is, I didn't start with, here's all the stuff you need to do. I, I, I just communicated, you need to be amazed by Jesus. You need to re-encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just recommended you should just camp in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and go back and read them. Get, uh, I have a, a Bible app, the ESV Bible app. You can just play it and it'll read to you. you. So when you're driving, listen to the life of Jesus. When you're getting ready in the morning, listen to the story of Christ. 
When you have a break, play the teaching of the Messiah and hear what he says and who he is and what he's done because there must be an awakening to Christ because that's what you've left. That's what the Corinthians left. They they had left the centrality of the gospel. They had left the work of Jesus and they were caught up with all kinds of stuff. What their culture was into is what they were into. They'd fallen into all kinds of traps. They needed to return to Christ. Have you ever been hiking and maybe you've been on a main pathway and then you got an idea, hey, well, I think I'll go and take a, take, a, take a side route. I think I'll hike over here and explore. We're in for an adventure. This is a well-worn trail. I didn't come for a well-worn trail. I want an adventure. And you go off and you get lost. What do you do when you get lost? Well, you don't just keep walking thinking, hey, I hope I'll, I hope I'll find my way somehow. You retrace your steps and you go back to the place on the path where you got off and got lost. And that's the same here. You turn around and you go back to the place when you were on the pathway following Jesus. You go back there and you fix your eyes on the grace of Jesus. And if you're here today, I can give you no better counsel than that if you're in a place of deep trouble and struggling. You can do a thousand other things to modify your behavior, but you will not, you will not be, come back to where the Lord wants you. You will not experience the grace that he has for you unless you focus on him. So the first thing is that grace and love cause strugglers to look above themselves to Christ. Secondly, grace and love cause strugglers to give beyond themselves. This section, the first four verses, are fascinating to me. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of the week, each of you uh, should put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So there will be no collecting when I come. It is a great error to think that someone who is sinning in an area or someone who is doctrinally confused should just be sidelined until they get it all together. That that is an error that we can make sometimes. Well, they're really going through something, so we don't want to involve them in the ministry of the church. But Paul communicates to a struggling church to a messed up people, I want you to participate in an offering. I want you to fund the mission of the gospel. Now, it would have been easy for Paul to say, man, I'm, I'm collecting from a lot of churches, but I'll pass on the Corinthians. They've got bigger issues. <laughs> they are an absolute train wreck, so I'll find somewhere else to collect money. But he doesn't do that. Paul is, you can read about this in Acts and other places, he is, he is undertaking a massive uh, work. The, the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians where the church was founded in Jerusalem, uh, they're undergoing persecution and difficulty. And so they're poor, they're struggling. And so he is going to the other churches and collecting money. And then he's going to take this to them to fund them, to help them. It's a compassionate act, but it's much more than just meeting a need. It's also a statement because the Gentiles are going to come and support the Jewish church. The, the place where it all began is going to get help from the new people. And so uh, the new Christians, the new kind of late in salvation history, those who are being folded in and grafted in uh, to, the, to the one true church, Israel. And so that, that, that's what he is doing. And he wants them to be a part of supporting their Jewish brothers and sisters. He doesn't exclude them because he has, they have issues. He wants them to take ownership and give. And this is very important. When people are struggling, first of all, they need to look to Christ. But secondly, they don't need to be marginalized from mission, from ministry, from participation, from sacrifice, from giving. He draws them to it. 
he gives them a very simple plan. Now, in, in his next book, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's going to talk a lot about sacrifice and the motive for giving, which is the gospel. But here he's just giving very basics. He says, look, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. This is probably one of the first references to the church gathering on Sunday. They were gathering on Sunday, likely. And so he says, when you gather, put something aside. And look what he says, each of you, each of you, this is not the leaders, this is not the wealthy, this is not those who could really make a difference, this is not those who aren't messed up. There are some godly people in the church. He says, each of you, everybody is to put aside something and store it up. So he calls everyone to participate. He calls to them to regular giving that is to be done weekly. He calls them to proportional giving. He says, as you prosper. So some folks are going to prosper more than others. Some will have a larger amount of income that they can give from. So everybody's to give proportionately. So there will be no collecting when I come. What's he saying? I don't want to show up whenever he visits them. I don't want to show up and have everybody kind of reach in and pull out a little loose change and give a tip to God. What's, what do I have left over? I want you to be deliberate. I want you to plan. I want you to weekly do this. So when I come, you'll have this store of what you've been collecting for weeks, months, whatever it is, so that you can give to this offering. If you are struggling in your walk with Christ, one of the most powerful things you can do is look to the needs of someone else. Sometimes we're struggling because life is all about my little world and it's just an inward focus. So I need to look first to Christ. May the grace of Christ be with you. But secondly, I need to look who has needs beyond me. He's calling them to consider an impoverished church, a persecuted church that's experiencing something that they are not experiencing and calling them to help, to give to them. Each of the Corinthians and each of us are called to, to the same thing. We're called to give as well. And one of the reasons is because giving directs our focus away from us. Giving calls us to maturity because it it calls us to look beyond me and my little world. It calls me to look first of all and primarily to God, but secondly to the needs of others. And, And my heart chases, follows, my heart follows my money. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. So he's not saying if they give a lot, they'll be instantly mature, nor am I saying that. But I am saying this, I've never met any mature person who's not generous. I've never met a spiritually mature person who's not generous because generosity means my heart follows my money. And if my heart follows my money, then my heart is towards God and towards others. If I'm giving motivated by the gospel with a pure motive. So it is, a, it, is a, it is a key to getting out of where they are to think about others, minister to others, give to others. And the same is true for us. He says, verse 3, when I, I'll, I'll send those that you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable, they'll accompany me. I love this. He's saying, look. Corinthians, who are a troubled church, get a few representatives that you trust and they will help transport the offering. Why? Because like we need a lot of people to carry this bag of cash. Probably not. It's because they, he wants them to make face contact. He wants them to meet the church in Jerusalem. He wants the Corinthians to represent the Gentile church and say, we're bringing this offering. We're supporting you. We're coming. And it's the Corinthians that are going to be a part of that. I love that. He does not count them out just because they're struggling, just because they're sinning. They have a calling to the mission. They have a calling to the unity of body of Christ. And he's not going to marginalize or sideline the church. They're all in. 
They're all in. It's amazing to me. He wants them to go to Jerusalem and them to participate in the offering. He does not count the Corinthians out. That's a big point in this last chapter. He doesn't say the story's over. He's still calling them to respond. Next, grace and love not only calls strugglers to look up beyond above themselves, calls them to give beyond themselves. Grace and love express personal care. Look at verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me out on my journey for wherever I go, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. Isn't this great? He's saying, look, Corinthians, I could make a, I could make a pass through right now, but I don't want to do that. I want to spend time with you. I might even spend the whole winter with you. I love this because Paul is not just some religious leader firing off some letter to correct everybody and set the church straight and get everybody in line and tell them where they're blowing it. He's personal, he's relational, he's a shepherd, he's a friend, he genuinely cares and wants to be with them. He sure isn't doing this offering thing because he just wants their money. He's not just, just everybody, you know, empty out all your money, give it to me, I'll be by to pick it up. Uh, on my way through. No, he doesn't want their money. He wants their hearts for the Lord. He wants the, the whole money thing is so they can be part of the mission, something bigger than themselves. He wants to be with them for a lengthy time, personal presence, personal care. That's how he treats stumbling, bumbling, falling Christians, confused people. Love doesn't say when someone is messing up, when someone is believing wrong things, professing Christ, but then believing wrong things. Love doesn't say when someone is sinning with their life and with their activity, I want nothing to do with you. Love says, no, I want to be with you. He says, I'm going to arrange my travel schedule so I can expend lengthy time with you. We all know You may be the Christian who's drifting, but if you're not, we all know Christians who are drifting. Someone's coming to mind right now. Someone who used to be in your small group and has drifted. Someone who used to see her on Sundays, "Ah, I don't know, drifted. Someone that you see their social media feed, you see what they're posting going, whoa, that sounds very different than where they were a couple of years ago. They're drifting. They may be trapped in sin that they may be entangled in relationships that are pulling them away from Christ. They may be chasing some goals that are ungodly, that have, that have gripped their hearts, and, and they're headed in the wrong way. They may be wandering from sound doctrine and starting to believe other ideas and open to other so-called truths outside of the Bible. They may be prodigals who are in various stages of running from God. That is the Corinthian church. And here's what Paul demonstrates as he he gives this personal statement in verses 5 through 7. He demonstrates that love moves toward people in their sin because Jesus moved towards us in our sin. 
Love doesn't avoid. Now, I'm not talking about a church discipline situation where our status and our relationship is shifted because someone's a professing Christian and they've gone through a process and they're no longer living. I'm not talking about church discipline here. I'm just talking, or I'm not talking about formal church discipline, but I'm just talking about people who are drifting and how we relate to them. And he's very clear here that love moves toward them in their sin. And I wonder today, we all know someone drifting. Who is it that God is calling you to move toward in their sin? Who is it? It's risky sometimes to move toward someone in their sin. They, might, they, they may feel trapped. They may bite. You know, sometimes it's risky. But who is it? I love it here. Notice as well that love receives. Love doesn't say you're a project. And, and so I'm going to come and fix you. That's not love. Love receives as well. There's this fascinating thing he says. He says, I I want to, uh, verse 6, I may winter with you so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Hey, I'm going to come to you. You may help me go to the next place I'm going. That could be financial. That could be someone that could be sending someone with him. You may come with me. I look to the disobedient, arrogant, ungodly Christians of Corinth. He says, I need your help. I need your help. Would you help me? Listen to his language about how he speaks of missing them. Later in the chapter, in verse 17, they had sent some people to visit. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, Caicus. Those are great Greek names, aren't they? Because they have made up for your absence. You sent these three guys, and it's like being with you. It's like being with you. I miss you. I'm reminded of you, just hearing about you from them. And I'm going to come spend time with you, and you can help me. Personal presence. Grace and love moves towards those who are struggling. Grace and love provides help. That's the next thing. Look at verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me. So not only is he eager to see them, but he's going to send them some help in the meantime. He's not saying, you know what? I have given so much to you guys. Do you know what I've done for you? 18 months I was with you, way longer than other churches. I was with you getting you established. Now you don't respect me. You don't like me. You're dissing me. You're criticizing me. You're living like the devil. I've got got responsive people I could be out here dealing with. I got churches. I got the Philippians. They are leaning in. The whole letter, I think he hardly critiques them at all. I got good churches. I don't need, no, no. No, I can't wait to be with you. And in the meantime, I'm sending help. And I'm not just sending help. I'm sending my young, vulnerable protege. I'm sending my very son in the faith, Timothy. He's timid. He's a bit tentative. So he has to tell them, don't give him a hard time. Put him at ease among you. I mean, this is like (laughs) Timothy going in. It's like chum and the sharks. They're going to eat him up and spit him out because he's a little bit tentative, a little bit unsure. And they are cocky. And so he's saying, look, I'm going to send him, but he's sending him because he wants to help them. And he says, he is doing the work of the Lord like I am. He's coming to do God's work among you. See, this is all faith. This is hope. God's not done with you. I'm sending another worker who's going to do the work of the Lord just as I am. He's providing help. What does that mean? He's not giving up on them. He's not writing them off. 
He also urged Apollos, verse 12, I've also urged Apollos to come. Couldn't talk him into it. I strongly urged him, but it was not his will. It was not at all his will to come to you. So he will come when he has opportunity. Timothy's young and naive. He'll do what I tell him. Apollos, he'll, he'll come once you guys settle down. But he's even trying to persuade someone else. They love Apollos, or a number of them do. He's even trying to get the guy they love there. He provides help. So let me ask you, what would it look like for you? Think of a drifting person, a person in spiritual trouble. What would it look like for you to provide help, not to give up on them? Not, there is always hope. It is never over. I don't care how far gone they are. If their heart is beating, it is not over for them. What would sending help be? What might it look like? What, would, what resource do you have to offer to a struggler? Maybe it's giving them a book that would serve them. Maybe it's giving them an article, something to consider, sending them a a sermon podcast that might encourage them in Christ. If I did, I would send them something about Jesus, not something about 15 ways that you stink at walking with Christ. I don't send them that article or, you know, a book, you're messed up. I, I would send them something about Jesus, something about grace to get their eyes focused on him. What could you send? Is there a counselor that you could recommend? Is there a mature Christian friend that could help you reach out to them? Love never gives up. Love thinks, love prays, and love sends help. Sometimes we're hesitant because we go, I don't have the perfect resource. I don't know. I'd like to send something, but they probably wouldn't listen. They probably wouldn't read it. They probably wouldn't talk to that person. And we just said, I got to have the perfect. Just pray and send something that's true of the Bible. Send them a Bible. I don't know. Something. God will use anything. Don't get frozen. It's not the perfect just pray and send the best you have. Get counsel from someone. Hey, what would you send? What would you, what would you say? What would you do to take a step? Provide some help. Grace and love next exhorts to commitment. It, it look above to Jesus, give beyond ourselves, get in the mission, provide help. Grace and love exhorts to commitment. Look at verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. This is what is powerful about that. He's treating them like a normal Christian, like a normal church. He's calling them, he's exhorting them to act like a believer. He's not making a special case and assuming, presuming they'll never respond. He doesn't say, well, I don't want to say anything really challenging. They're not going to respond. They're, they're terrible. No, he says, be watchful. That is, be alert to your own weaknesses and your own sins. He calls them to wake up. He calls them to stop wandering. Stand firm in your faith, in the faith, rather. The message of Jesus, stand firm in the message of Jesus. Don't give up. He calls them to response, assuming that they will be responsive. Sometimes people don't respond. We assume the worst of them. And there's no expectation that they ever would or ever could respond as a believer, that they ever could repent. But he says, no, act like men. This isn't a a sexist statement because it's a statement of be courageous and women are courageous 
as well, childbirth anyone. Uh, Women are courageous as well. But the reason he says act like men is this was a phrase used in the Old Testament that was frequently spoken to soldiers before battle. We're going into battle, act like men. And there were no women soldiers uh, in that day. So to say act like men was a call to be courageous. Hey, Corinthians, stand up and be courageous. He's challenging the weak by the grace of God. He's not giving up on them. They're not getting, you know, like, like Christianity light. He believes God's grace is available and they need to be strong and do everything in love. This has been the central theme of the whole letter to, to live according to love. He also calls them to be subject to their leaders. Verse 15, he says, you know, the household of Stephanus, they were the first converts and they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to these and to other fellow workers and laborers. He's basically saying, be subject to those who are, um, uh, who are leaders. So he calls them to be responsive. The Corinthians, yes, he's still calling them, exhorting them to love, to ignore error, to stand true to Christ, and to respond humbly and subject to their subjection to their leaders. So grace doesn't just say, well, I don't want to say anything. I mean, again, there's timing, there's wisdom, uh, there's relationship. I mean, there's there's discernment. There's sort of an awareness of when's the best time to say what. Um, So he's saying other things aside from that. You'll notice that before he started calling them to stand firm, he had made a big statement about personal attention. I want to be with you. So it was based on relationship. That's significant. But, but we, we sell people short if they're wandering. It's like, well, I don't want to ever tell them to follow Christ or tell them, call them. No, he calls them. They're professing believers, he calls them. Here's the last thing. Grace and love express affection. This is where he really ends the whole letter. He says, look, the, uh, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Corinthians, you're not alone. All these other churches know about you. I'm sure they did. The Corinthians were probably infamous. They were probably infamous. Uh, But they they send you greetings. They're not ignoring you. They haven't forgotten about you. They haven't written you off. They haven't said you're the black sheep of the early church of the New Testament. Uh, They they actually send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca is a short name for Priscilla. It's a short uh, nickname for Priscilla or a short name for Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla, who used to be in Corinth, Paul worked with them making tents, that they and the church in their house send you hearty greetings. Yeah, well, Aquila and Priscilla were with us. They left. What do they think about us now? They probably left because we're all messed up. No, they're here with me in Ephesus. They got a house church going. The whole church knows about you. And they don't just say, yeah, well, if you ever get, there's hearty greetings. They're greeting you. They're thinking about you. As a matter of fact, he says, all the brothers send you greetings. Everybody's concerned about you. See, think about that wandering person that you know. So sometimes it's, it's easy, and this is to our shame. God, may, may the grace of God help us. We can just forget about people or just let them drift. Paul's not doing that. Everybody's wondering about you. Everybody's thinking about you. We're all greeting you. Didn't just let them go. Didn't just let them go. He cares about this church. He cares about the future of this church. I know I've been addressing individuals. He's addressing a church, but the principles are exactly the same. Kiss one another. 
with a holy kiss. That would have been a, a, I don't know, they were Greeks, so I don't know Greek tradition, but think of like a good Italian family or something like that. They kiss one another. That's an expression of, um, that's an expression of love and greeting uh, in, in that culture. So we might say give a hug or a handshake or a fist bump or whatever is, is appropriate in, in our culture. Um, so, hey, show love to one another. And then he does this personal thing. Most of, this, this, most of his letters were likely dictated. But he says here at the end, I, Paul, write this greeting. This is my hand signature to you. If anyone has no love for the Lord, he puts a warning here at the end. Let him be accursed. Those who reject Christ will be judged. Lord, come. He's the anticipation of his coming. And then those closing lines, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. Grace to you. My love is with you. It's powerful how he ends. He moves to them, calling them to the grace of God, moving to them with love. And this is exactly how Jesus relates to us. He, he came to us in grace. None of us deserve him. None of us deserve to know him at all. Jesus came totally by his own choice. The Father sent him the, by grace. That's something we don't earn. That's something we don't deserve. There's, he's extended grace to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the whole message of this closing and the whole message of the, of the Bible. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were making a really good effort, Christ died for us. Not when we had cleaned ourselves up to a reasonable point, Christ died for us. Not when we were worthy and deserving of his love and affection, Christ died to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were dead to him, while we were opposed to him, while we were ignoring him and chasing our own desires, Christ died for us. And this is exactly what's, how he has related to us. He, op- he died for us. He opened our eyes. He gave us a new heart. He didn't just make us savable. He actually saved us. This is his love towards us, that even when we were his enemies, he has made us, the Bible said, his friends. And this is what, so Paul takes that gospel truth. Grace came to me at my worst point. Jesus died for me while I was a sinner. Jesus opened my eyes when I wasn't looking for him. Matter of fact, Paul was opposing the church and Jesus saved him. Grace came to me. Christ's love came to me. Now I am compelled to extend that same to others. And in this case, the Corinthians, even in their confusion, even in their rebellion, even in their immaturity, They're so immature, and yet the love of God is extended to them. The grace of God and Paul's personal care is extended. He does not write them off. He is for them. He expects God to move in their midst. He expects them to respond. And the good news is they do. There's another letter, 2 Corinthians. That's another study for another year. But someday maybe we'll study through that. They do respond to him, and it's wonderful. Now, he calls us to do the same, to move towards others, pointing them to grace and expressing tangible love to you. Them. So who is God calling you to move toward today? How will you move toward them? Who's he calling you to move to? How will you move toward them? What is your next step? Don't figure out a whole rescue plan. Don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to figure out everything that's going to happen because the Lord will do things that you're not anticipating, you're not expecting, and they may too. The Corinthians sure did. But, but what would be the next step? If we could walk out of here with a person in mind, 
Let's start with our own church. Let's start with somebody you know who's struggling in our own church. But maybe it's family. Maybe it's someone from a previous church. Maybe it's somebody you, uh, that you know at work. Maybe it's a neighbor that professes to be a Christian but's in deep spiritual trouble. It doesn't have to be someone from this church but, but it, or someone who was in this church, but it could be. Let's start there. And what is your next step? Maybe it's a call. Hey, I just was thinking about you today in the sermon on strugglers. Don't say that. But uh, you, you came to mind when they taught, he mentioned really immature Christians. I thought of you. No, don't say that. But maybe it's a call. I thought about you today and I just wanted to check in. How are you doing? Especially if you're a millennial, you don't even, all you do is text, right? So a call would be like, whoa, did somebody die? Why are you, why are you calling me? You know, it must be huge if someone called. So make a phone call to them. What, what maybe, it, maybe it would be send them a note of encouragement. Maybe it would be buy them a book and give it to them or forward them a helpful article, a blog post or something you read that is really helpful or a sermon that you heard, not this one, but another one. Um, maybe it's to invite them to serve. See, I think it's totally counterintuitive that he says, hey, get on board and give. So maybe it's calling them to serve. Hey, we're going to go out and do this. Why don't you join us? Well, they're not at a very good place with the Lord, but they're a professing Christian and they haven't denied the faith and they're struggling. Let's get them. Let's get them involved serving. That's what Paul calls them to the mission. Maybe it's that inviting them to serve with you in some way. Maybe it's just expressing your love for them. Like Paul, I just want to spend time with you. Could you come over for dinner? I just want to spend time with you. Just want to hear what's going on in your life. Just want to catch up. Just want to be with you like we used to hang out. Just could you hang out? Let's go to dinner. Let's grab coffee. Whatever it is. I mean, there's a lot of steps. I mean, I just listed about 10 things you could do. I don't know what, what would be best, what's the best one for you in that situation. But what could you do to express care in the next step? What if everyone in this church who's not in deep spiritual trouble, we're all struggling, but not in deep spiritual trouble, what if everybody approached, took a next step with someone and then prayed for what's the next step after that? How many prodigals might return? It's the work of the Lord that brings a heart home. It's the work of the Lord that brings conviction and repentance like to the Corinthians. But he uses his word. He uses personal presence. It's the grace of God and my love for you. It's not, well, the grace of God, so I hope someone somewhere, no, it's my love, my presence, my words, my care, my help. I'm sending someone. I'm helping you. It's all of that. What if every one of us reached towards a struggler? God is the good shepherd and he never gives up on a wandering sheep or a wandering church like the Corinthians. He never gives up, but he calls them back to himself and we get to serve Christ, the good shepherd, and we get to join the good shepherd in his mission of seeking to go after, to help, to welcome, to love, to serve, to exhort and correct when appropriate uh, to those who are wandering just like this entire letter does but it's all based on confidence in the grace of God and a calling to love and to express that. The last two verses of this book, we should have maybe started there, they describe Paul's entire methodology, and I would maybe even argue his entire ministry. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.